Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have again Dr. Keith Bueller. Yes. Woohoo! Yay. Thanks for being here, Keith. Thanks for having me on again. It's an honor, especially as I've been listening to the podcast recently. I, I feel like a midget among giants, you know, Dr. Chalky and <laughs> some of these other great guests. Yeah. The ironic thing about what you just said is Dr. Chalky is actually kind of short, I think. He, he is. He is fairly short. That's one of his charms. I remember seeing him, you know, walking to his logic class that he uh, is famous for with his yeah. notes. That's very. Right. Very short, but a, a giant in, in intellectual stature. Yes, he is. He's like a hobbit, um, I guess. And I, I hope he, if he hears that, that he takes that as an immense compliment. <laughs> because I mean it as a compliment. He is a giant. Um, Keith, you're unique in the sense that you are a scholar practitioner. You have just done, I think, your eighth real estate deal or something. Is that right? Yeah. So does that mean you're not a real estate rookie contract. anymore? You're still not not a real estate rookie anymore. Is that right? I suppose so. I, I it's one of those things where people ask me uh, questions that I actually know the answers to. You know, if they're getting started or whatever. So I'm like, okay, maybe I can offer some helpful advice now. Yeah. What well, what helpful advice have you given recently? Well, um, I'm meeting with a guy next week and we're talking about retirement, right? So it's, it's not just, you know, Hey, I want to get started in real estate. I want to make more money. That's very vague goal. It's, that's fine to start, but it's how much money by when, <laughs> so I can help my retirement. And I just said, Hey, like, this is basic financial advisor stuff. I'm not a financial advisor and I don't play one on TV. But if, if you can make, you know, say $2,000 a month, um, by building sorry, how, how many, estate, how many dollars a month, say $2,000 a month. Okay. In if, if say he has 10 years before he retires, if he can build up to $2,000 a month and you add that to social security and your 401k, then, then you maybe are going to be, you know, your retirement's ready to go. So think, think 10 years. 10 properties at 200 bucks a month on average. And that's fairly easy. That's very doable. So I was just kind of helping him to think about real estate as a piece of the pie. Yeah. Cool. How much cash do you have and to I, tie I, up for that though? Well, that's the question. Um, there's, there's more aggressive and there's less aggressive strategies. Right. <laughs> if you're just to go straight down the middle of the road, say you're trying to hit singles, you're not trying to hit home runs. You don't want to throw your back out, swing it, <laughs> swing it at every fastball. You want to hit singles. I would say count on, um, you know, something like 10% cash on cash return. So um, if you want to make 2000 a month, uh, you want to invest um, in terms of down payments, something like uh, 200,000, um, which would buy you 20% of a million dollars worth of real estate. So you, so let's say you, you own a million dollars worth of houses, but you only put you know 20% down on those houses and you're making roughly 2000 a month from that. And that will go up as rents rise. And as your mortgage you know, balance goes down, you can refinance it to lower your mortgage payment to increase your cash flow. 
Um, so yeah, 200,000 over the course of so the next 10 years, that's 20,000 a year. And this is somebody who is, you know, getting closer to retirement. So he has money and savings that he could now start to keep, take out of savings and put into a house and, and he could get there 200,000 in 10 years, like without sweating. Hmm. Wow. What about interest rates going up? How's that going to affect things? Inflation is a so you could crack. always it could always oh, inflation's terrible. Um, it yeah. tends to be inflation tends to correlate with the value of real estate, and so it mm-hmm. once you own the it's hard to get into the property, but once you own the property, um, you know inflation going up is gonna is actually gonna maybe increase the value of property, and, and your net worth is gonna keep up with inflation, um, which is kind of nice. That's one of the big benefits of real estate. Um, as opposed to say, um, the stocks where, you know, the stock market got cut in half or whatever recently. And, uh, you know, or or as opposed to just buying cash, just buying, going to the ATM and buying cash. (laughs) So the interest, so what you want to do with, with interest rates going up is you want to, you want to look at your spreadsheet and don't get emotional about it. I've had people you know, who said, I would, I would buy a house if it was 3%, but I won't buy it 4%. Well, what, what does that 3 to 4% mean for your monthly payment? What does it mean for your affordability? What is it, and, and, and what does it mean if it goes up to 5 or 6% and you didn't buy it 4, right? So you can't just say, oh, it's, I decided I'm not going to buy it 4%. Like right. you can't just say that. You have to look at the spreadsheet and say, it's going to increase my monthly payment by 200 bucks. But at the same time, if it continues to go up, which it, you know, it always could, um, then I'm, I'm saving 200 bucks a month if it went up to 5%. So, you, you know, it's really about, is it the right time for you to buy and can you afford it? When I'm looking at investment properties, I'm doing the underwriting, which is when you run the numbers to see if it's a good deal. Um, I'm doing the underwriting at six or 7% to make sure that by the time the deal closes, if rates have gone up, you know, that much, I'm still willing to do the deal. That's and smart. anything, anything below that is gravy. You know, you're, you're, you're okay. Wow. Okay. So you have eight properties. Is that right? Or you're under contract for the eighth one? Yeah. So okay. um, eight like properties and 22 units. In 22 other words, units. Okay. Yeah. They, we call it 22 doors. You know, there's actual uh, renters, 22 different renters contributing their rents to our properties and, and creating income. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's up from two units, two doors, two years ago. <laughs> two units, two, two doors, two years ago. That's all. That's quite a gain. And this whole yeah, time so you've 20, been 20 doors in the last two years. And this whole two years you've been working full time or probably more than full time as a headmaster for K yeah. through 12. Yeah. So in Southern California, not right. some. Not not in Topeka, Kansas, or something like that. You're in SoCal, <laughs> where you know a hot dog costs like eight hundred thousand dollars, right? At the ball game. Right. So, so Keith, um, there's so many ways we could go here. Uh, this is so fascinating to me because you have a PhD. You're involved in K through twelve with these little kids, and you're doing real estate deals. And you seem so confident. That's what I noticed. How, uh, are you really confident 
or is that just a facade that you put on? <laughs> confident about like real estate? Yeah. Confident in, in general. Yeah, yeah. 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 When you it's run the numbers, well. you're like, okay, this is this has to work. Oh, it's 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 ridiculously easy. I mean, you you and I, Lucas, have worked very hard for academic credentials, right? And doing a PhD is hard. It it, it takes time. Yes. And it takes a complexity of thinking that a lot of people don't have any patience for. Right. Right. Um, real estate is not like that. <laughs> it takes, it takes time, but it's so it's such big building blocks. It's like, if you're used to building circuitry hmm. and someone says, can you build this out of mega blocks for my two-year-old? And you're like, Ta-da. <laughs> I put two and two together. I mean, the, my joke is, is, you know, is it a good deal or not? You know, you pull up your spreadsheet and there's just two columns and it says, did you make more than you put in? It was a good deal then. <laughs> um, so who's that comedian? That's like, how many units of girth is a, is a UPS package? But, but it's got to, it's got to project out into the future for you to be, feel confident about it. Right. So you have that's 20, right. you have 22 doors. That means you have to have people in there, yeah. you know, to, and, and they're not only in there, they're not squatters. They're not in there, but not paying. Right. So do you have to consider the jurisdiction? Because typically yeah. in certain jurisdictions, I mean, President Biden, um, I forget which political party he is. He he put a moratorium on evictions. He thought he could do that uh, yeah. for the for the uh, the public health panic. I hate to call it a pandemic. I, I want to call it a public health panic because I want to yeah. not saying that there's not a real public health uh, issues that we deal with on it on a daily and weekly and monthly and yearly and decadely basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always been here. Disease has always been here. The question mm -hmm. is, how do you respond to it? And the yeah. sledgehammer approach, which was to uh, respond uh, callously toward people's life savings that they've put into small business, um, callously, uh, you know, discriminating uh, toward large employers like Walmart against small employers. Um, mm -hmm. like your lo local neighborhood restaurant that doesn't have a lot of outdoor space first, but they have a lot of indoor space, but not a lot of outdoor space because that's owned by the city. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. I mean, you know, you have, you have yeah. these concerns, sure. right? It, it, so some jurisdictions, they might say, oh, no, no, you can't evict somebody. Mm -hmm. They don't pay rent. Um and so does that factor in, do you think about that when you look for a place? A hundred percent. Yeah. If I can back up, I want to say, cause the, the full-time work comment, like the way I'm doing real estate is as a total side gig and you know, there's a hundred ways to do it. And a lot of people, you know, do it full-time. And of course they're going to make a lot more money, a lot faster. I'm doing a very, very tortoise level method here. Um, one deal a year, two deals a year. And when you do a deal, I mean, it doesn't take that much time. Once the system is kind of set up, um, I'm working on the weekends, 
maybe once a week making a phone call. And then it kind of goes into passive mode. I maybe have to go to UPS to sign papers to close a deal. And I send them out because I'm doing all my stuff out of state. I'm not driving to the property. I'm, I'm looking at pictures online. Um, and so this is very, very passive part-time type of a thing. Um, and so that's the first thing is it's been like almost like a relief from work. It's like a avocation, right? I'm, I'm sick of looking at, you know, budgets and enrollment numbers and, and meeting with people. I'm going to go play with numbers and, you know, dream about what I could do in the future with a little bit of side income. <laughs> Cause that's awesome. I've been an educator. That's the second thing I want to say. I've been in education for 15 years. I've been a teacher or a poor grad student. And I've always been content being poor. I like, I don't like having a lot of money. I don't like having a lot of responsibility. At least that was how I, how I was uh, as a young twenties. But I thought, oh, I want to make enough. I want to make the minimum amount of money and spend the minimum amount of time working, right? That's how some of my younger friends now also think. And that's how I thought. When I had my first kid, I got married and I had my first kid. I totally changed my tune because it's like, money isn't just for me. Money is for my wife to be able to, I don't know, buy that kitchen utensil that she wants without me having to like check the budget or you're gonna have to save up for two months for that, honey. And money is for my kids to get them experiences, you know, to take them to places. In graduate school, we had a budget, a summer vacation budget of $200. That included the gas and the hotel. So we basically had like a 50 bucks left over for experiences. So we would drive to a national park get a hotel for two nights, you know, 60 bucks a night, 70 bucks. A night. And then we would have a few dollars to buy food and experiences. And that's the stuff that my kids like really remember and really love. And so, you know, I read this article that said, spend money on experiences, not gifts. Basically that's the bottom line. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that. So these things kind of put pressure on me to think about, okay, if you're going to stay in education, which I love and I never want to, you know, until they drag me out of the classroom in a coffin or a wheelbarrow, um, I never want to leave teaching and administrating, but I do need to make my own side money if I'm going to have any of these experiences. And so that's really the, the motivation. To me, you're like a, a private school headmaster dream because there's a huge budget crunch on private schools. As you know, there's a, a structural problem, first of all, because everybody's paying taxes for government schools. <laughs> The mm -hmm. government schools will take your money regardless. Right. And then so folks that really care about the education of their children enough to send make sacrifices to send them to a private school have to also come up with the other extra cash for that. And guess who feels the pinch? Well, it's the teachers and the administrators of the private schools that are making a mm -hmm. for just a fraction of what public people, their public counterparts uh, make with, with none of the structural protections that the public people get and none of the big, huge pensions and the Cadillac health benefits and stuff like that. So the, for, mm -hmm. for you to uh, be enjoying the uh, pursuing financial independence, um, and, and doing your real estate rookie stuff, that's, that's quite a, they really lucked out to get you <laughs> your, your school. And, so. and, 
that was kind of my pitch too to to my board was like, hey, I want to keep doing this on the side, and um, and it's going to keep me from begging for raises, and it's going to keep yeah. me from, and, and you know, in in some possible future, I could be donating to my own school. I donate a little bit back, you know, in terms of um, buying things and not getting reimbursed, or donating a little right. bit when I can. But um, like I closed the deal and gave a little bit from that, the proceeds of that deal last month. Cause it was like my first big um, kind of my first big, you could say profit profitable deal, as opposed to you spend money to make, make money. Right. Um, so, uh, but I'm thinking in the long-term future, I'm thinking about, we have an endowment, you know, we have a very baby mini quasi endowment. How do I generate money for that endowment? Well, maybe I can buy, maybe the school can buy passive income producing real estate and keep it in the endowment. So it's all tax-free growing on its own. And the proceeds are going into our scholarship fund as opposed to people's cash dollars. Mm-hmm. So it's been, it's actually been a very interesting synergy. You wouldn't think, you know, on paper, go, go hire a, ma- a headmaster who's also real investing in real estate, but it's worked really well because everything I've learned about real estate, I would say not everything, let's say 90% of everything I've learned about real estate, I've learned the last two years. I figure it took me five years to get a PhD in philosophy. It's going to take me five years to get my PhD in real estate. Mm. (laughs) And, and that will be the proof of concept will be, you know, I don't have to write a book, but I have to show my portfolio. It's like art school, right? (laughs) My portfolio of of property. But um, what I've learned in the last couple of years is that investors are donors. These are wealthy people who donate what's part of their overall mission in life to support organizations and people. And donors are, are investors. I mean, there, there, there are no rich people who don't think about investment as a category, right? They, yep. If you're rich, you think about what do I do with all this money or what do I do with these assets? And there's tax incentives and so on, but you, know, you just think, who can I help with this money? Right. So one thing, I've, one thing that's converged is talking to donors and learning that they invest, talking to investors and learning that they donate and trying to, to think, how can I use this to benefit my school in the long term? How can we build a financially stable um, private Christian academy that's going to have a lifespan of 20 years, let's say, before I retire, and then 100 years after that, or or indefinite? Um, so that's been a that's been a cool overlap. That's awesome. So you're an activist. That's that's what I hear, and I mean that in like genuine, the best possible way of that. I mean, I mean, you uh, you're not just you know like over there, definitely on one extreme Scrooge, uh, counting your gold coins. <laughs> on the other hand, you're not just like, kind of like one of these kids that inherited everything and just riding around in your Ferrari. You're, mm-hmm. you are coming at this from somebody who was poor and you're hundred percent committed to the mission of education and you're an activist. Yeah. So, and yeah, I think you're I also think, a theologian. Think, so how does theology come into play here? <laughs> well, right. Yeah. I mean, theology comes into play in that our Lord says it's hard to be rich and saved. <laughs> right. So I'm trying to acquire more wealth. And that comes with that, that other spiritual danger. Um, you know, you have yeah. to be poor in spirit, no matter, no matter how successful that your investments may, may or may not be. You have to, you know, one thing my mentor taught me is you have to basically wake up every day and say, if I lost it all, I'd be fine. 
you know, I could live in a, I could live in a one bedroom apartment with my two kids and my wife, like I did um, in 2017. I could live in, uh, I could live on the street. I mean, camping's pretty fun. I could go to campsites and <laughs> live wow. in a tent. <laughs> um, and so you kind of have to have the attitude of, as long as this is fun and it's working and you're enjoying the journey, I'm going to keep going. But if it ever becomes weird and yucky and I'm thinking about, you know, money all the time and boring people with conversations about investing, um, then, then it's time to slow down or stop. And, and the thing with real estate is you can, you can, if I stopped trying to get new properties, um, right now I have four, I have three partnerships. So the, my partners are making the majority of the money and I'm making a small percentage because I invested their money and I you know, set up the deal for them. Um, but, but, but their income would continue to go up over time. And my income would go up over time because of, of rent increases, because of the pro, pro houses appreciating because of paying down the mortgages. So you really, at any point you stop, you're going to continue to grow your income. Right. And so that's like a cool feature of, of this passive investment um, yeah. kind of strategy. Now, can you, I don't know if you, how comfortable you feel uh, sharing any of this, but my, my question, when you said you had 22 doors was how many of those doors have to be filled for you guys to break even? Because you're right. not the okay. only one. You're not the only one that's on the hook for this, right? For Correct. you're not the only uh, owner. Yeah. Is that so, how you guys talk? Is that how you rich people talk? Owner? Is that is that <laughs> well, a word you? I'm not rich yet. Yes. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was I was in I was I was doing an impression of a Democrat for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did get some flack from my Democratic Facebook friend for just for owning property. She's like, you're causing rents to go up. And so I'm like, I, I, I have nothing to do with this. I own a property that someone wants to rent. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, um, basic economics. Yeah. So there's a lot of rich Democrats, though. That's the funny thing about it. They're, I mean, especially in California, they're Oh my gosh. The, the whole state rich, is, the state is dominated by them. They're rich on, on taxpayer salaries, you know, taxpayer funded salaries rather than like working hard and figuring stuff out. <laughs> probably the most, probably majority of them. Yeah. Fit in that category. Yeah. I mean, there's some talented democratic you know, actors and so on and God bless them, but tech people. Um, yeah. yeah. So the, the, the short answer is yes, you always are calculating the numbers right. such that the mortgage, which is your main kind of financial obligation, the mortgage has to be covered by the rents, plus what we call, I call set-asides, or you could call um, reserves, you know, so the mortgage plus the set-asides, set-asides would be uh, vacancies, repairs, and capital expenditures. Capital expenditure is your like roof, that you know the roof's going to need to be repaired in 10 years or 20 years, uh, so it's not like a repair, like a pipe broke, right. but you, you really don't like to think about that because it's 10 years from now. That's a long time. Yes. So capital expenditures is a separate line item in my, in my underwriting that says uh, mortgage is an expense and then set aside for repairs, for vacancies, capital expenditures. And, and so that what total, are the, yeah. What are the percentages look like for that? So you can, it's, it's an artistic thing. You can kind of set it how you want, depending on your risk, depending on how much money you have in savings. I do, I do four to 5% um, for uh, uh, 
repairs, four to 5% for capital expenditures. So just to give you some numbers, let's say you bought a $100,000 house that you're renting for $1,000 a month, okay? And the mortgage is 600 bucks, okay? Um, you wouldn't say, wow, look at $600 mortgage, $1,000 of income, I'm making 400 bucks a month because that doesn't have any set-asides. You would say, right. I'm gonna put aside 5%, which is, you know, like a 5% of a thousand, which would be 50 bucks. I wanna put aside 50 bucks a month for repairs, which is a little low. I'm gonna put aside 50 bucks a month for um, the capital expenditures. And I'm also gonna put aside, I would put aside like one month per year of vacancy. So let's say you're renting it for, for a thousand, you would wanna have a thousand dollars in a little vacancy reserve fund because someone's out for a month, you lose that income, but you pay for it yourself from your own savings and your cash flow stays steady. That's kind of the idea is you're, you're, you're keeping your cash flow even. Um, now, if you have a, if you have a hundred thousand dollars sitting in the bank somewhere and you, you have a month of vacancy, you don't care, you don't need to keep that reserve fund, but it's just an artistic thing. Yeah. So, 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 okay. You got four to 5% a month. You're setting aside for repairs, 44 to five, not 45. Correct. <laughs> Otherwise we'd be at 90% right now. Four yeah. to 5% for capital expenditures. And then you gave a different formula for the vacancies, but what like does it work out for percentage per month? It, it, it depends 10, on the rent for that. 10%? Yeah, it depends. Well, so you want to have a thousand dollars total. Like after you get a thousand, you know, say, say, even $500, $500 means you can pay for actually 500 for, for my current property manager, $500 would pay for a vacancy for, um, uh, oh no, 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 no. I'm getting confused. 500 bucks to a thousand bucks. Let's say a thousand bucks. Once you get to a thousand dollars in your vacancy, let's say someone stays for two years and there's no vacancy, or let's say that they move out and a week later it's filled again. You didn't use that vacancy reserve. So you don't need to like keep on funding it. So a thousand bucks would be like one month worth of vacancy. Once it's funded, you kind of ignore it as opposed to the repairs where you want to keep funding it, even if you don't spend it because right. repairs are coming sometime. What are, are, are the leases all for the same term of years or months? Are they month to month? Are they six months, one year? For, what's the breakdown for those 22 doors? Typically, uh, and I have to say that it's it's 12 doors right now, but we have a 10 unit under contract that just, we just got under contract on Sunday. Okay. So I'll talk about the 12 doors. Um, they're all they're all year leases. And oh, then at the okay. end of the year, we'll usually ask the tenant, do you want to sign up for another year? Um, and there's like a small incentive to do that. Um, or do you want basket? To... What do you do for the incentive? Uh, yeah. Is it so... a six hour, a new six hour? <laughs> I've been, uh, I've been experimenting it? with like, yeah, little gifts or just like a monetary a incentive. Pig? Yeah. <laughs> a white elephant that they cannot feed, but cannot <laughs> let die. Do you, do you allow pets? Um, in most of them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are you now, what's the turnaround time to, if somebody leaves, how do you get the place ready again i mean i know that you can't really say until you see the place but is it is that a concern of yours that you have to yeah do you have to replace the carpet or do you just you know get the carpet cleaned how does that work how much how much money does that cost 
it's it's so it's so easy it's ridiculous um i, I understand the question and, and people get very like anxious about like well how would that work but once you do it once and you realize that there's no there's very little trouble to it um okay. it, it becomes silly so i mean in the normal case where they're not stealing your copper and stuff <laughs> beating uh, pummeling down the uh, the walls <laughs> which hasn't sorry we're yet, in california you know. we have to we think about this stuff you don't have any rentals <laughs> right. in California, right? So I do not. I okay. cannot afford California. And, and 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 the numbers don't make sense. So this is back to your question of vacancy. One of the things I've learned in the last two years from podcasts, talking to investors and reading books, and from my own experience, is you pick a market first. You don't necessarily want to buy a house that's close to you and try to make it work. My, I just helped a friend run the numbers on buying a house that's close to her. And she was going to invest a whole lot of money on a California home. And she was going to make a 1% return. Oh, ow. okay. Ow. And I said, I said, I said, my minimum in Kentucky is like a 12%. And I'm shooting for higher than that. I can't say how much higher because people like think it's a scam, but I, I did get <laughs> more than 12% on my last deal. Okay. Um, in terms of cash on cash return. So praise God. Um, the, what you do is you shop for a market. What is it? What is a good market? A good market is people are moving into this city, which is going to mean that the places for rent have people to rent them. It means that there's jobs and a diversity of jobs in the city or the metropolitan area, which means that the people who live there are gainfully employed and can pay the rent. And you, you want to look at, you know, basically um, like desirability, like, is this a place you've heard of now? <clears throat> Uh, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and actually Riverside, California, are in the top ten most migrated to markets in the in the in the country right now. And so you just look at that and you say, okay, I'm going to start in Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and Riverside. Well, well, tell me, tell me again what the other one was besides Riverside. Uh, Florida, Texas, and Tennessee they they happen to be red states. <laughs> that's an, I'm sure that's an accident. Uh, they happen to have like, one of them has like Ron DeSantis, you know, as opposed to Gavin Newsom. It's a, probably a coincidence, like you're saying. That kind of stuff doesn't matter. But but these are states where, oh, and, and then these are states that are landlord friendly. We call it landlord friendly, meaning that if someone's not paying their rent, it's not an excruciatingly long and difficult legal battle to get them to leave. Um, I have had to evict uh, one person before. And it, and it was a very, I think I've, I've asked people to leave. So they weren't evicted. I just said, Hey, we're going to not, we're going to dissolve your lease. And, you know, would you like to go? Because we're not having a good experience. What was the issue? They weren't paying rent or they were paying late every single month um, for like a year. How late? Like half a month late. That's late. So they would, they'd pay on the 15th and they'd catch up and then the first would come again and they couldn't, you know, the cash flow was, was behind. Okay. And so I said, and I, they were, they were great people. And I just said, look, can you, can you guys catch up you know, over the summer and before we renew the lease, otherwise we'll go month to month and we'll, we'll, we'll part ways, you know? Um, and so they were a little upset and um, that was, that was fine. It was a little upsetting, um, but like that, that's the way it goes. So there was one guy that did not want to leave. And so we had to go to court in Kentucky and, the judge gave him an addition. He gave him two weeks to catch up on his rent, basically. So, like the judge, you know, the judge was 
Um, did you did recently, you have to fly to Kentucky to go to that hearing, or did you okay. hire somebody? Yeah. So my property manager, I have I have three property managers now um, in different Central Kentucky, Northern, and Southern Kentucky, or Southeast, um, and they do everything. This is part of their services that they provide. So they sent me a legal bill for like literally seventy five dollars that they had to go to court and talk to the judge and gave the guy some time. He didn't pay his rent and he left. And so we had, you know, we had to eat that money, whatever, but we got it filled with a new person who's very happy. And so it really wasn't a big deal. And, and that's partly because Kentucky is landlord friendly. Gotcha. And, and so there are a bunch to- of racists. <laughs> there are a bunch of hick racists in <laughs> Kentucky and we're extremely enlightened here in California. That's right. With all, you know, all our homeless laying around in the streets and <laughs> the gutters and yeah, you know, with their, their syringes, the syringes California. sticking out of their arms. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's flourishing. Yeah. Flourishing area. But, but the, the question about vacancy, I've never had, and this is like, you know, it could change tomorrow. Right. But I've never had a vacancy longer than two weeks. Unless wow. I, unless I was choosing to like, Oh, let's renovate a little bit harder. Let's change the flooring. And, so basically the places that I own are desirable enough that right. when it pops up on the market, I mean, I was getting 10, 20 applications a day. Wow. So if you go to Florida, for example, I can't afford Florida either, but if you mm. go to Florida, the last I heard, there are zero houses available for sale. Every house is, so the only new houses that are being, um, you know, if someone puts something on the market, you know, it's going to go quick. The only houses that are being created are new construction. So you're literally waiting in line with a million other people to get a house built so you can move into it. And there's just nothing to buy. There's no vacant houses that are not already, already built. So that's a, that's a good sign that, you know, you should invest there. The average home value is maybe 250 or something like that for outside the big cities. But of course it's higher in the big cities. So if you invest there, if you can afford it, you pretty much know for the next 10 years, you're not going to struggle with vacancy. So that's, that's one of the things you control for by shopping in the right market. And same thing with squatters. I mean, if I had someone squatting, which, you know, thankfully hasn't happened, then we would kindly put a notice on their door and say, you have to pay it. And then we let's go back to theology really quick. You said that God, our Lord said, it's hard to be saved and rich. Yeah. How can you kick somebody out? Keith, you're a Christian. (laughs) <laughs> don't well, you I follow mean, the lord so the lord said he has nowhere to lay his head where's your compassion where like what I guess where's, where's your christian makes you more christ-like so yeah but, i mean tell me tell me so, um i, I think how it's you just process like, that for it's just for, like any other business if you if you own a restaurant and people come in and eat and don't pay you know you can kindly put up a boundary that says you you can't come in here and eat anymore because the last 10 times you didn't pay your bill. If you choose to, you know, feed somebody out of charity, um, that's, that's your choice. But, but if they choose not to pay, that's called stealing, you know? And so I think that having boundaries and enforcing them in in the business world is, is ethical. (laughs) You don't want to evict people for no reason. You don't want to evict people uh, because of your own convenience, right? The lease is a mutually binding contract. You have a place to stay for a year. I have more or less guaranteed income for a year. That's the trade. We're both getting the best end of this deal. Um, if I don't give you a 
a safe and and clean place to stay, then the government of Kentucky is going to come tell me to to take care of that. I had somebody, I had um, cockroaches, uh, and this lady, you know, she got really upset, and she got the the government to um, come and investigate and see if there was a real significant problem, and and they said, you know, just call the exterminator and have them take care of the cockroaches. It's not a big thing. Like you can't sue this guy. Or... So, you know, we took care of that and um, that's it. So I mean, it, there, if I, if I said, I'm not going to take care of the cockroaches or if it's truly an infestation, as opposed to they're just coming out of the sewer, like they do sometimes during the year, um, you know, then she can take, take legal remedy. So it's a mutually beneficial, you know, business relationship to rent to somebody. And, um, you can't fail on your side of the bargain either. Are you saying that God cares about landlords? God cares even about landlords. God His love extends that. This far. is the title of the episode. God cares about landlords too. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's an interesting thing for people to think about, like that whole boundary thing. Of course, we're getting into a little bit of psychology there, but there's a lot of abuse out there under the guise of spirituality that That's right. you don't have any rights. You give up your rights when you're a Christian. Um, well, I guess it would be even if you're not a Christian, you somehow don't have property rights. Um, mm-hmm. How do you what do you think is the foundation for your view of property rights? Because that's really what you're talking about, right? That's right. I mean, uh, I, I think of a, um, I think this is a quote from Alistair McIntyre, but uh, if it's not him, I don't know who it is, but that, that even materialists and naturalists, their, their last metaphysical belief is in property rights. Hmm. When I say this is mine, you know, I bought these a couple of days ago from the gas station. When I say it's theirs until I give them that six bucks, and then I give them the six bucks and I say, it's mine. Nothing has changed in the material world. <laughs> right. But we think that that well, location, that, location was changed. Sh- sure. So if I bought it and left it there and I said, <laughs> hang on to them, for me, <laughs> then I'd be a, a glasses landlord. Um, yeah. But like that seems to be uh, odd in a naturalist framework. But I, yeah. I think that most real things are abstract and invisible. Right. God, angels, the forms and souls and the past and maybe even the future in some sense are all not materially present. Um, right. And so uh, so property is one of those things that you can own first your body, you know, and you can own things around your body. And that when you when you have a mortgage deed that says this transfers from this person to that person, the deed isn't the ownership, but it is an effective sign of ownership. And the ownership has changed somehow. It's sort of like when you say, I do, you weren't married and then you become married. And being married is a metaphysical reality that just happens, you know, some point between by the time the service is over Uh, in the Orthodox church, we don't say I do. Uh, And so you're sort of like, uh, you don't say, yeah, (laughs) you're you're back. Um, uh, Well, in Kentucky, you say, yep. (laughs) Uh, no, you, you basically, they ask you, have you come of a free and unconstrained will? And you say, I, I have, and then they start the service. And by the end of the service, you're married. It's, it's the priest does it all, you know? <laughs> gotcha. 
so anyhow, it's one of those transfers, like 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 becoming an adopted child of a of somebody. It's one of the or becoming married, or or disinheriting somebody, you know, or adding someone to your inheritance. It's one of those transfers that is real and it has a legal reflection, but it's hard to limit it to just the legal. You know, I don't think property is just a legal right. I think I think property rights would exist. Um, on a desert island, let's say, you say, this is my beach because I've fished here for longer than you. And I say, okay, well, this is my beach then. And I can't go on your beach if you don't want me to. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. So, so ownership is not, not a, it's not purely reduced to enforcement of a claim. Um, in other words, uh, it's possible. See, this, I, this is why I think being a Christian helps us understand our own legal system. That's right. Uh, and I think that non-Christians have a harder time, I think, I, I, except for Jewish. I, I would say, let me put it this way, the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition has a has an easier time understanding our, our, uh, our entire legal system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's why I'm a little bit frustrated sometimes when I and I scroll through my feed and, and there, I, or I, I look at Christian podcasts and there's an obsessive amount on abortion as, as the only legal thing they ever focus on <laughs> but that and like uh, religious Liberty, mm-hmm. but, but it's like, there, there's so much more actually going on uh, that really should be the focus just as much, I think of uh it it just turns out in our uh, with the kind of judges that we love the ones that are pro-life typically get the whole thing they get a lot more than just the life thing because they're all they're related yeah but that i love that the the way you said that because i mean kind of um and it, it is tricky to kind of dial down and and get at what exactly is law but in some sense we have a view of God that is like a supreme lawyer in a way. And when we say God is judge, like in our system, the judges are lawyers. I mean, yeah, you don't have, you don't have judges that are not lawyers. They're, they're like, they're like super lawyers. They're lawyers who, who, yeah, that's what what a judge is. I mean, judge knows the law. The judge has to know the law and the idea of law and so we think of God in those terms, and uh, there's a lot there that uh, I think is behind this stuff. I don't know what you want to, if you wanted to say something about that. I'm thinking of the Marxist systems, for example, um, where there's just a view that the, whatever the state says goes, that, that's what the law is. The law right. is what the state can enforce. Right. So there's and, a lot of corruption. There's either there's either no underlying reality that the law could be inaccurately, you know, reflecting, right. or right. or there's they, no they, truth they, to the matter beyond enforcement. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's why they there's either so say much corruption. There is no like natural law, or they say the civil law is the natural law. And that you know, like Thomas Hobbes says that, you know, whatever the even the meaning of words of disputed words whatever the king says that the word means, that's what it actually means and actually has to be in scare quotes because mm-hmm. they don't actually have a concept of actual, <laughs> you know, we, we are the ones who have the concept. Spoken of like a true Platonist. 
<laughs> yeah. God bless you. Or actually an Aristotelian. Yeah, sure. Well, I, so I think, I think God as judge is a really interesting metaphor and obviously, you know, biblical metaphor. And so something more than just a metaphor, but we ha- it has to be balanced against God as father, God as creator, God as uh, lover, right? Husband. And so when you put all those together, you get the sense that, oh, maybe it's not that God is a lawyer, but lawyers are in some sense reflecting a heavenly reality um, the way that fathers are, right? Paul says fathers get their name from the father in heaven. And so maybe like judges get their name from the, the judge in heaven. So he's the real thing. And they're this sort of like partial reflection. Um, I'll never say anything nice about lawyers ever again. I'm sorry that came out, but um, no. <laughs> well, My dad used to make lawyer jokes. So I feel like see, I to... see Marianne Glendon's book, uh, Nation Under Lawyers, that book. Just read it. A Nation Under Lawyers by Mary Ann Glendon. Okay. Um, and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> well, and I'll say something else about law that I, I learned about the Romans, right? That the 12 tables, which is this like kind of like right. the 10 commandments of the Roman law. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's 12 tables, not 12 laws. It's a whole bunch of laws. Um, the first table and the first law is if someone summons you to court, you have to go. And I, and I think that's a very interesting kind of like almost first principle to say, if we're going to be a system of, uh, where the courts enforce justice, you can't opt out of going to court because then the whole system falls apart. You're a complete sort of anarchist. You're not submitting to the court. Now, you know, we, people break the law. There's criminals all the time, but we make the criminal go to court. We take them in handcuffs at gunpoint to the court if need be, so they can go through the system that they don't believe in or that they want to violate you know, the law anyway. So I just think that even the Romans had this strong understanding that law abidingness, uh, including respecting people's property, was a kind of a, a non-negotiable. You know? And if you, don't, if you don't submit to the punishment for breaking the law, you get to go to the special prison where... Uh, we still try to treat you like a human being, but you've opted out of this, our whole system. Yeah. You experience this, a measure of civil death. That's right. Like what do we don't know what to do with you? you we right. said, stop. You said, no, we said, we're going to punish you. You said no to that. Right. Where, where do we put you? We're going to put you in prison. Okay. Yeah. But you know, I don't want to play ball. I don't want to go out on bail. I don't want to get on parole. I don't want to have good behavior. Like we, you are so not, you're not one of us, you know, the only place yeah. for you is way outside. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So That's anyhow. Good. I would give a plug for uh, Richard Epstein's book takings. That's a, that's a key book and he's not a Christian. I think he's Jewish. Um, but Richard a Epstein takings mm-hmm. it's on, it's on private property. And he goes back to the Roman law. He always goes back to the Roman law. We had his co-host on the podcast. He, he runs uh, probably the biggest law podcast in the country called mm. Law Talk with John Yu. We had John Yu on. Cool. And I'm going to try to get Epstein on, although he's old, and I'm not sure if he even checks his email. We'll mm-hmm. see. But, um, yeah, I would like to have him come on and talk about property property rights because that's a key thing a lot of people the the issue of takings has been so 
messed up by, by the courts. Mm. Um, it's in the constitution. Can't the, the government can't take your property without just compensation. But what, what constitutes a taking and how much scrutiny do you exact on any kind of taking done by the government? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating area of law. And I, I think it's a key issue. Like, I think actually, if a judge has that issue right, I would trust him on probably every, everything else, including no the second, including the Second Amendment. Yeah, no kidding. because a, a lot of the Second Amendment stuff is really takings issues. Uh, you know, it's 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 the government not really respecting your property. Like, take, for example, the 10 round magazine or the 11 round magazine ban or whatever, you know. It's a standard capacity magazine. It's it's it numbers in the, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions. You know, the Cal- state of California ar- arbitrarily says you have to block that magazine at ten rounds, and either you do it or the manufacturer does it. Right. Well, ordinarily, you think if you can fit ten rounds in a magazine for lawful purposes, the eleventh round shouldn't make you a criminal just because it's number 11. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. It's arbitrary and capricious. Mm-hmm. Uh, arbitrary and capriciousness is the lowest standard of review for striking down any government action under the, the administrative procedure act, you know, any, yeah. any kind of rulemaking that's arbitrary and capricious has to be struck down. Right. Well, it doesn't, I mean, but, but the deference given to, to stuff like that is so great that it just amounts to a taking. Yeah. And um, uh, it's certainly no ju- there's no just compensation. You rightfully right. acquired this magazine. Sure. And then they're saying you can't own it or we're taking it back or we're making it or criminalizing it. Right. And it's judge it, it, the reasoning given doesn't, doesn't make any sense. It's like, it would be like if, if you had take, for example, an analogy with cars you have most cars have more than 10 gallons of gas that you can fit in the gas tank mm-hmm. ordinarily when you're going to the gas to buy gas for lawful purposes i mean you're not buying it to commit arson for example you're not going you're not buying it to burn down stanislaus national forest right <laughs> you're buying gas to get to work it's lawful mm-hmm. purpose right it's an mm-hmm. ordinary usage of that gasoline well, you, you ordinarily, you just buy as much as you can fit in, in the gas tank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it would be like if, if, if somebody just didn't like cars and they didn't like gas and, and they said, well, we've done some studies and it's possible that some rational person out there somewhere thinks that 10.1 gallons and above should be criminal because mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's possible it's not safe for something. Right. Well, I mean, okay. So then you now, now I have to arbitrarily block my gas tank, which requires uh, expenditure, uh, some kind of expert. Uh, and then it also, it inconveniences me. It, it takes my time. It inconveniences the, the manufacturer now that they have to stop those now and start, mm-hmm. you know, and it doesn't make any sense. Cause if I have a right to 10 gallons of gas, I should have a right to 11 gallons of gas. It's, it's the, 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 well, and that's it's about what you it. can fit in the magazine. If I can fit 11 rounds, which Glock Glock magazines, you can fit 11 rounds in there. It's a, it's a spatial issue. It's not a, mm-hmm. anyway. So 
Well, so, I mean, it, the problem there is that it's not actually arbitrary. It's that they're trying to get it down to zero, right? They're like 10 is, 10 is one step closer to zero. And they're trying to yeah, use they, the law to, to uh, incrementally outlaw guns. Yeah. But who bears the burden of proof in showing that? Because they will, they will deny that they will deny that till the day, you know, they'll say, Oh, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. But it's the the only possible explanation. Yeah, it it is the only, but that requires an attention span for you to see that. Yeah. So, but, but my point was, is that takings, uh, takings is really, really the issue. Um, Mm. And so many things. And uh, my guess is that someone like that would have the right view of abortion because it's about limited rights it's i'm sorry limited rights for the government right the Mm -hmm. limited limited powers for the government um now when you were leveling up on your real estate abilities here Mm -hmm. um did you make any mistakes that you want to share or is there any is there anything that you can help us with like expect if if we want to get involved and and what what would you suggest people do to get involved yeah so um the first thing that i heard a lot of people say and i will i will just echo it is that you want to educate yourself first there are quote-unquote classes and courses you can take of course they're usually offered by an individual or maybe a business it's not actual like university or school classes um but you know when we say educate educate yourself first, we mean like pick up Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Poor Dad and read it and think about it. And when he when you and then you go to his website and look at his top ten recommended books and um, go to uh, a guy I really like is Marco Santarelli. He's got a podcast and a a book. I think a couple of books. Marco Santarelli, um, passive real estate investing podcast. And, um, you can start just with the latest episode of that. Um, let's see, complete guide to investing. He's got a, a little book that's called, I can't remember the name of it, but it's something like, you know, how to, how to get started with passive real estate investing. Um, you listen to some of these guys and then, and then, and gals, and they start to, their information starts to converge. They start to refer to each other. And that's when you start to realize, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting some mastery here, um, but it's sort of the kind of thing where if you start anywhere, you can get to where you need to go. So don't don't try to pick the perfect first book. I really enjoyed the the classic, um, uh, the richest man in Babylon that was recommended on some podcast, and I picked it up. I found that it was written you know before the 1900s. I think it was like maybe a turn of the century book. So it's a very old book that just is a paradigm shift yeah. for somebody who was raised not really understanding money. Yeah. Um, so you yeah. want to like start educating yourself as widely as possible, not just for real estate, but understanding the basic principles of money and financing and saving and investing. And then when you get into the real estate space in particular, um, there's again, sort of universal principles that you can find in just about any of these books. And once you feel like you kind of have those, then you can start to think about, okay, applying them in a particular market. What market, uh, how much money do I have? And what market do I want to look in to make my first purchase, my first investment? Having a mentor is great. It's going to reduce your anxiety. Um, But just having a plan and a system 
that you have used or that you've built from, from reading these books and listening to these podcasts and talking to investors, that's going to help you decide, you know, whether you're kind of on the right track or not. So I will say that, that we, we owned, we bought the house that we lived in when we were in Kentucky in graduate school in 2012, we bought the house we lived in, but it was a duplex. So we rented out one side and that was like our, the beginning of our investment journey. And that was just because a friend told me it's a great way to do things. You rent out the other side of the duplex and it reduces your total, you know, mortgage bill essentially. Um, so between that and 2020, so eight years, we didn't do anything, <laughs> but um, in 2020, I bought my first house as a duplex in Lexington, Kentucky. And that it was like the first house I'd never lived in. If you know what I'm saying, it's like the first investment property and it was very scary. <laughs> so I didn't make a mistake there, but I just want to like note that anxiety is part of the process. There's nobody telling you, there's no teacher telling you you're doing the assignment right. Uh, there's nobody leaning, looking over your shoulder going, ah, you calculated those numbers wrong. So there is a bit of risk and it's like fortune favors the bold. Um, if you've done your, your research and you've educated yourself and you've done your homework and maybe showed it to a mentor, then you can have a little bit more confidence. Okay. I'm making a, a wise investment here. How do, um, how do people get a mentor and what obligations do you owe a mentor? Like, you know, it can't just be receiving, right? You, how, what do you provide the mentor? What do they get out of it? So, um, for, for a lot of these real estate guys, um, that are fairly young and fairly successful. There's so much information on the internet that a lot of people have started becoming investors like me, you know, virtually with, with no, nothing. I have no, no background in real estate, no, no, like um, no successful businesses under my belt that I'm, I'm using to launch this new venture. It's really just pinching pennies from my teacher salary and my wife's salary. Um, but you get it, you can get all the information if you're self-motivated and if you're a self-learner, so a lot of these guys have become successful and they get bored. They're, they're tired of making money. And so they start classes and the classes might cost money, but they really are fundamentally a public service. You know, like they're not making as much money teaching the class as they could buying their next property, but they're sick of making money. So there's guys out there and gals um, who will teach you their system. You can buy their book. You can go to their seminar. I went to a free seminar about how to finance deals from a guy who has a mortgage company. And he's like, yeah, someday in the future, I'd like you to, to use a mortgage with me. But for the purposes of this seminar, all this information is free. And it's all because I'm sick of making money. I'm so thrilled being rich at this point that there's, I don't need to grift. I don't need to like sell myself anymore, you know? Um, but they're getting so anyhow, something else out there's of a lot it. Of people they're, out there, they're, they're getting something out of it, right? They're getting... What are they getting out of it? What what's the mentor? What's the psychological reason for the mentor to? Ah, uh, okay, that's so that's the question. So yeah, so I was gonna say some people charge, and and obviously they're making a little bit of money, um, but some people, I think it's more blessed to give than receive. I think some people realize that they would just enjoy their life more if they were helping other people to achieve their goals than just focusing on achieving your own goals. You know, um, so there really are some selfless and um, Un, we call them unmercenary in the Orthodox Church, right? Unmercenary. There's some unmercenary people out there who want to help you. I'm doing one deal with a partner right now where I like, I negotiated myself down like multiple times. Like I want less 
I want to receive less out of this deal because I want to see you get your first deal. And I want to see you, and this guy's a business, a businessman. So as soon as he gets the process, he's going to be able to do his next deal on his own and he's not going to need me. What I get out of that is I get the pride of knowing I helped him launch his career. And that gets me, it's like teaching that gets, that gets me high. I know that I helped you to become smarter, wiser, better, more virtuous. Um, so you have to so like the person, the mentor has to like you. That would, that would be <laughs> ideal. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then, that makes and sense. then the other thing, the other thing is, so, you know, you want to understand the general principles you want to understand, hopefully maybe have somebody to help you. I've, I've had two or three investors that I can call including podcast guests, by the way, someone will be on a podcast and they say, here's how to contact me. I send them an email and they email me back and we talk. And these are some like big name investors who totally gave me their time for free. Um, so, you know, that's, that's why I want to, I want to put my email at the end of your podcast and say, like, if you want to reach out, um, I will try to respond even if it's, Hey, I don't have much time, blah, blah, blah. Okay. (laughs) But, um, the point being that uh, once you know your goals, so my goals were very clear from the beginning is I want more spendable income on a month-to-month basis because I don't make enough money for my my now growing four kids, right? I have four kids. Wow. Um, I want more spendable income month-to-month. That means a very specific type of property where you're getting in for as low of a price as you can and as high of a rent as you can. There's specific markets where that's the case. Um, that you don't have to do it that way. You could go for, for example, in Florida, you're going to get a very high appreciation because the demand for new housing and demand for used housing is so high. Whatever you buy it for today, it'll probably be worth more in a year. Now that's not cash in hand, but your total net worth or your total like retirement, you know, when I sell everything at retirement, that total amount's going to be bigger. So there's different, once you know your goals and you know kind of what's possible, assume anything's possible. Assume you could be making an extra thousand dollars a month within like six months. Is that what you want? Or do you want to have some kind of in 30 years or 20 years, I'm going to have this much net worth or, you know, assume everything's possible, pick what you want to do and then try to make that happen. And, and just little, little steps at a time. How do you choose a a property manager? Um, It seems like kind of a big risk because they're taking Huge. care of everything for you, right? And what if you get the wrong one? Don't you worry about that? Yeah. So property manager is the most important thing. It's it's market first, property manager second. So if it's a good market, then you have to get a good property manager. If you're in a bad market, your good property manager still might you know not be able to fill those vacancies because there's no one to rent. Good market, good property manager. And then you have everything else like a good property and a good tenant. Um, it's kind of like who who's interviewing the tenants who's getting an eyeball on these people. Is it the property manager? Or is it you the, all the property manager? Yeah. So I do very little other than try to get a new house and put the money into it. And the property manager takes over, they get the keys. They, they put it on the market. They take photos. They put it on 12 different websites, rents.com, apartments.com, Zillow, they screen the applicants and I can tell them, Hey, I want you to screen for higher credit score. I want you to screen for higher income. I can give some, I can manage the manager a little bit, but typically if they're professionals and you trust them, why would you interfere? Um, okay. uh, and then you say, what's the, you know, what's the market rent? They say, well, we have 10 houses on this street and they're all six fifty a month. So we're going to start at six fifty a month. 
And you can say, oh, you know, I wanna, I wanna have a cheap discount housing to keep the vacancy low, let's do 625. Or I wanna maximize my returns, let's do 675 and see if anybody bites. Um, so you can kind of work with them, but again, they'll give you advice on what's the rent, they'll fill it, uh, they'll send you the lease. I have an online portal where I can see the leases. And then you give them a bank account and they, you know, they keep track, they do the accounting, they keep track of uh, expenses, repairs, and then they send you the, the rents every month. If something's late, you know, maybe they enforce a little late fee of 25 bucks or, um, but I can, I can email them and say, Hey, why are they late? This is the second time, you know, and they say, Oh, they're having trouble with making their payments. They said, they're going to catch up. So they're taking care of everything. I don't have to interfere if I don't want to, for the most part. And, uh, and you then have to use, months, you've never had to use violence or anything. I, I never have. I did have this. This is an interesting story. I did have, I did go visit all of my properties last year and I had a tenant sexually assault me oh, um, wow. while I was visiting. Seriously? Um, yeah, wow. she, yeah, she, I, I was probably foolish to, uh, to interfere, but I was in her house trying to like fix things. You know, I could have hired somebody to do this, but I wanted to go see inside all the properties. I had four at that time and everybody was very nice and friendly and so on. But she was, you know, uh, a divorcee and a single woman who I think had mental health issues. And so me being friendly appeared to her as, as flirting and she came on to me and, uh, and my wife, my wife was like, see, I told you not to go visit the properties, leave it up to the manager. Hmm. But it was, it was a, you know, sort of a new experience for me. I've never been, uh, been touched in an unwanted way before by like anybody, you know, male or female. Um, so, you know, you do, you do have to have, that's, it goes back to boundaries. You know, if you're going to visit somebody in their house, you kind of have to know in advance, keep it, keep it professional. <laughs> Maybe don't be too friendly. Um, I'm blaming the victim now. See, I was too friendly. It's my fault. Um, no, but I was trying to say that the property manager is so, so important. It's kind of like yeah. if you take, if you take a class, you know, universally, maybe this has been your experience. Someone says, I hate geometry. You say, did you have a good teacher? And they go, no, the teacher was terrible. Well, you don't know if you like geometry or not. You just don't like that person. Uh, right. And if someone says, I love history. You know, did you have a good history teacher? Yeah, they were great. Okay. So you don't know if you like history yet. You just like that teacher, you know? Interesting. Um, and it's the same thing with property management. My sister lost some money in the 2008 crash on her investments. Hmm. And she said, oh, it's terrible. Be careful. Oh my gosh. You know, when you're starting to get into real estate, people project their anxiety onto you. And yeah. guess what? She had a terrible property manager. They mm. were not tracking the things. They okay. were losing money. They were in violation of little codes enforcement. You know, mm -hmm. people had left, you know, people had left notes. You have to fix this. And they didn't do it. Mm. And so, of course, she gets a, an email from the state of Arizona. Like, you're in violation of this law. Well, that, that should be the property manager's job. You know, you need to know that they're doing a good job, but right. they need to do the good job. Gotcha. Um, okay. So anyhow, so the way to shop for a property manager, there's lots of podcasts on this too, but like, yes, you know, sure. you basically, you ask them questions just like you would interview any other professional. Like if you're getting a lawyer, how long have you been in business? Um, you know, what are you, what's your at, what, how many units do you manage? Right. My guy, uh, Tyler is his name. He said, I managed 2000 units. And I said, you can't be all bad. <laughs> right. I don't know. At some point, maybe there's a diminishing return on his effectiveness. Don't you well, worry well, about that? Yeah, of course. But, but what, what that means when you have that many units, that means he has three construction crews who work only for him. 
These are not people you have to book their time, you know, competing with, with the next door neighbor. These are guys who are going from unit to unit to unit. So if I need uh, a fence removed was the last thing we did, like they showed up within two or three weeks, took the fence out and it's very minimal cost because they're getting paid basically um, salary. So I'm right. not paying, okay. I'm not paying like retail handyman wages, uh, wages yeah, yeah. for these things. Right, right, right. Gotcha. So anyhow, you sense. just get to know the property manager, do a gut check. Do I like this person? Do I think they can do a good job? And maybe interview two or three before you decide or better yet, you know, get one on recommendation. Um, but then once you have a property manager that you trust and, and, and you're ready to go with, then you start talking to them about the properties. Hey, what do you think of this property? One, two, three main street. They say, Oh, that's a good part of town or that's a bad part of town. Um, we have houses right. for you know high rents. We have houses that are vacant there. And you start to kind of collaborate. Before you pull the trigger on a property, do you physically see it? So as of right now, I am no longer visiting. You know, I, I haven't seen, except for the first, well, I should say, except for the first one that I lived in. Yes, I, all the ones I bought, I bought sight unseen. Okay. Which sounds so you, scary. wait, hold on a second. You said all of them you've bought, you have bought sight unseen. That is, I've not been inside. Yes. And it sounds scary than it is. I've seen pictures. In some cases, the property oh, manager. I mean, hopefully, wait, hold on. Let's get this on the record. He has looked at pictures. Okay, people. So you're not just like going, yeah, that sounds like a good address. I like that number. And six is my lucky I like number. number. I, I, I like that. I like Elm Street. That sounds nice. I like that. It sounds yeah. beautiful. It, and after we bought it, we found that it was a hole in the ground, but no, uh, yeah. Pictures. And in some cases, the property manager or the real estate agent will do a walkthrough on zoom. Um, in some cases, there's an, a professional inspection where they're sending you dozens of photos and a complete list. So there's ways of, of reducing that feel, that scary feeling of I've never actually, I'm buying something I've never actually been inside. Yeah. Well, I guess it, it's possible to be inside the property and miss a bunch of stuff too, if you don't know what you're looking for. So it's not necessarily that that's a good use of your time. That is a very rational statement. And, and people don't realize that. <clears throat> if I was to buy a car, uh, I, <clears throat> I would want to test drive it, right? Sure. But I can't diagnose a car's engine problems. I just don't know that much about cars. Yeah. So if I was to buy a car for that someone else was going to drive, like I'm buying a taxi and someone else is going to use for their day job, it really doesn't help me to drive, to test drive it. I don't know what to look for. Right. So you mentioned a book earlier, uh, Robert, uh, it was a Japanese last name. Kiyosaki. Kiyosaki. What the, you said it was rich dad, poor dad. Wh why did you reference that book? What did you get out of that book? What's so, the, in, in real estate investing, reason I should read it, that in, in real estate investing, they call it the purple Bible because for, for everybody, it was their like red pill wake up <laughs> moment. Okay. Um, it's a fun book. I think I read it when I was younger. It's a fun book to read because Robert Kiyosaki is very pugnacious mm. and, um, and combative. But if you're ready to sort of like have a paradigm shift about finances, money, taxes, wealth. Um, it's a very powerful, it's a very useful book. Um, it, it, what he argues, you know, the, the premise of the book is that he was raised by his dad, his birth dad, who was a government employee, salaried, educated, had, in, you know, retirement accounts, 
and was poor his whole life and and basically had nothing you know had nothing to um, pass on to his kids and so on hmm. he had his his friend michael's dad was self-employed private sector um uneducated entrepreneurial and rich his whole life and he would get that he would ask the same question to both and get this sort of like you know right answer wrong answer and so it's a very powerful sort of stark contrast of most of us were taught about money from people who don't have any money Hmm. most of us were taught by our poor parents or poor teachers or whatever poor mentors how how to use money how to invest how to save how to make money and so what's going to be this result we're going to be poor too as 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 the as the cause you know creates the effect and so he's giving you the tools and it's very it's a difficult book in the sense that you have to really be willing to unlearn things but he's giving you the tools and the concepts to understand how money really works you don't have to use them you don't have to become rich but you know maybe you'll understand why why you're rich or why you're poor if you understand these these concepts so it's a powerful book and and because he talks about real estate as one of the main ways of um you know getting more money out than you put in um it's become the kind of the big red bible or the big purple bible for um for a lot of investors so a lot of people will recommend that you know start there and then read my book you know (laughs) um and let's see he talks about taxes he talks about business starting a business um his one of his big concepts is the idea of an asset okay when we think we use the word asset there's no cussing on this show Oh, I'm sorry. Asset. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> big, I thought, I, I thought you said assets. something else. No, no, no. Big assets. Um, uh, I like, I like big assets and I cannot lie, but, uh, you know, he says an asset, we typically think of an asset as something that has value or worth. And he says, no, an asset is something that makes new money every month. So your primary residence, which you're spending maybe in California, a three or $4,000 mortgage on your primary residence is not an asset. It has value, but it doesn't make you put money in your pocket every month. It takes money out of your pocket every month. Yeah. So that's a very contentious thing to say and whatever he's trying to make a point. But his, when, when you, when you take his definition of asset, just try it on and you look at your personal finances, my wife and I did this. We had a big long list of things we own that have value. And we had one thing besides my job, we had one thing that makes us money every month and it was our investment property. So in other words, after eight or 10 years of marriage, we had a single asset. Everything else we'd spent money on had lost value or just stayed the same. Hmm. And I'm going, you know, wait, so if I want to get ahead and not like, if I want to be able to buy a, a new minivan in the five years when my kids are, you know, a little older and my if I want to be able to pay for my kids' college, or if I want to be able to retire, I have to get more assets. That was the paradigm shifter. Um, not make more money. What do, what do us poor people do? We think, I don't have enough money. I need to work harder, get a job, and make more money. And it turns out that will never work. You are always going to be poor, no matter how much money you make. There's tons of poor lawyers, doctors, and surgeons, and poor bas- professional basketball players. How are you and defining they- poor? They spend everything they make and they have no assets. And if they stopped working, they stopped, they, they have zero money left. So, you know, if you stop working, if you have even one asset, 
back in 2020, my little, my little duplex was making $500 a month on top of mortgage and all the set aside. So if I so stopped the, working. So that was on top of the set asides, the four to five for the repairs, the capital expenditures, your taxes, uh, the, the, uh, the one month you're setting aside for, for vacancies, you're saying your in pocket was 500 a month, 500 a month. That's that pretty was good. After, it was great. And, and that's after, you know, eight years of rents naturally rising. Right. I'm actually below market value on all my properties, below market rent. So people are not paying as much as they would for the next door neighbor's house. So they're not, they don't have, they have an incentive to stay put and not constantly be looking for another place. That's part of it. Yep. And, and also just, I have been neglectful in raising the rents and paying attention to market, <laughs> market rates. But, um, but, you know, so the, the rents naturally rise. It's a market thing. It's not a personal decision. And so the amount of profit you were making day one, which was maybe 250, has naturally gone up 30 or 40 bucks per month per year as the new lease, you know, maybe they're paying 650, now they're paying 680. And that $30 is pure profit because all my expenses have stayed the same, right? So after eight years, it was about $500 a month for this one property. And if I stopped working and I was disabled, living on the street, going into the mission field, I would still have that $500 a month income. That's an asset. Okay. So you um, want to get more of those. And the way you get more of those is by rinse and repeat, find, find a system and keep going. That's right. That's right. And I, I've, I've pivoted my system because my system required me to, you know, essentially to save up 20, $25,000 of my own money to buy another house next year. And that's a lot of money to save. And, um, and so, and my wife's work is sort of inconsistent. And so we've pivoted now to these partnerships where I've done, you know, three deals on my own and I have a market, a property manager, you know, an understanding of the financing and all these things that I can bring to the partnership. All you need to bring is capital. You've got your, you've got your 20, $25,000 or more um, and we're going to go try to find a property and we split the profits. So I've done that now three or four times and could potentially, without having to invest my own money, could potentially meet my financial goals in the next, you know, four years. Wow. Um, four, four years. Yeah. So the goal is by 2026, I made a five-year plan last year, um, by 2026 to, reach a certain level of passive income where the assets are paying, even if the assets are growing in value, whatever, that's very abstract. They're paying cash money every month. Kiyosaki um, uh, asset definition. Kiyosaki assets. If, yeah. if those Kiyosaki. assets, which I own personally or co-own with partners are producing my target passive income goal, then I will kind of totally pivot my strategy. Say, look, my income now is met. Um, I set a benchmark based on my salary from a couple years ago. So if I can make this much through real estate, then now I, I either double my income because I'm still working my salary or I can change the way that I, I work. You know, I can work right. different hours. I can donate. I can start a, another organization. So that's kind of the goal is, you know, in the next four years to, to grow the portfolio to that level. Wow. 
That's awesome. So none, all of this was accomplished without any threats of violence or resorting to like uh, just basically mafia tactics, uh, hiring hitmen, hiring thugs or, or goons to um, threaten people. That's pretty much the only method I, I know about. So this is get rich dad, poor dad. Get rich dad, poor dad. It's very enlightening. Hey, what's, what's, a, speaking what's amazing of your, is that. Oh, sorry. Well, I was going to ask just, you about your own dad because that's mm-hmm. on my list. Oh, yeah. We have to talk about dad. Well, I was just going to say that, that, that what's amazing is that people who want to sell these investment properties that are making money, you think, why why would they want to sell? Well, they're like retiring and they're ready to cash out or they've got a better opportunity in Florida and they want to get their Kentucky properties out of the way. So everybody's happy. The seller is happy. Me as the buyer is happy because I'm getting an investment property. The renter is happy because this place is coming on the market. And it's been renovated and it's been made nice and it's all new and it's all ready to go. And, you know, so it, everybody's happy. The, the, the employers that employ these people, now that person has a nice place to live. And so they're going to be a better employee. So that it's just, you're part of this system. Um, and of course you get some financial benefit for it, but it really is, it is kind of a beautiful thing. So the endorphins are there, the serotonin, I'm taking it back down to the material world. Oh yeah. Some oxytocin. It's really just about the chemicals in your brain, basically. (laughs) So everybody's got good chemicals and that's, that sounds really cool and idyllic. How do you find your business partners? Um, Mostly just talking to friends like my brother, (laughs) my, my friends. I mean, I've been so jazzed about this. I mean, I've never, I've been poor for so long that if I'm able to get, give myself a raise, I get really jazzed about it. And I tell him, yeah. I'm telling my brother-in-law and he's like, right. I'm investing in this, that, and the other thing. Maybe we should do a deal together. I say, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but if you're willing to take the risk with me, hmm. let's do it. And, and of course, you know, um, I've since then learned more as to make it less risky, but one was a college buddy. Uh, one is a, uh, a church buddy. And then this next one will be um, with my brother-in-law and, uh, yeah, and these are, these wrong. have all worked out. I have to ask you, and I'm I'm a little bit worried about asking because I mean, are you really going to tell the truth? Because these are people you know, but <laughs> but I'm just we're trying to get a sense for for whether you, you're honest or truthful about this. Uh, the, these have all worked out. These partnerships so far. I mean, they're they're young, right? So they're a yeah. year, um, a year old. Uh, Lots can go is- wrong one is three months old and one is like under contract right now, you know? Um, so, so far, lots can go right though. So lots lots can go wrong. You want to have an exit plan. You want to have a, you know, we have an, a legally binding operating agreement that, um, tells, you know, talks about how we split, split the profits. And if you disagree, you want to be the first one to concede right out of love. Um, but you don't want to be like a jerk. Um, but, but it, we also have an exit strategy. It's like, hey, if we need to sell this property and we calculate the profits, we split the profits, we can dissolve the partnership. That's it. Um, and so you want to work with people that you could conceivably get along with. Um, you want to establish. So I, I established I'm the decision maker when it comes to like, I'm the only cook in the kitchen. I'm the decision maker when it comes to the property and what we do with it. You're the decision maker with regards to, do we keep it or do we sell it? If you're happy keeping it and going, it's your money that's invested. But 
if you want to sell it, you want to cash out, kill the golden goose, stop receiving those eggs, then I will, I'm not going to fight you on that, right? I might think it's more profitable to keep it going, but you have most of your money invested. So that's what we agreed in advance. How did you get, get the language, the specific language for the operating agreement? Did you use uh, a, a boilerplate or did you actually yeah. hire an attorney for that? So I, I had a couple like uh, attorneys look it over, um, but it's pretty boilerplate. It's very simple. It's, you know, this is our split and then the rest is boilerplate. Um, so as but I get the, more- The language, specific, I have a little bit of experience with operating agreements, but the the language of who is making the decision on the operation, how, how do you, what what language is that? Where do you get that from? What are you called the president of this partnership or are you so just the manager? What's the managing language? partner? Yeah. So, okay. you know, limited partner or the capital partner and then the managing partner, we do have to agree. We have to have unanimously agree if we make like, if we decide to take out a loan or something like that as, as an LLC. Um, but mo- mostly it's um, the, 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 who's making the decision. That's verbal. That's a verbal agreement. Like, Hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the decision maker on, on everything except for, do we keep or sell? And if they say, cool, you know, if they say, I want to be more involved or I want to learn the process, then we negotiate that. Um, or I want to buy you out someday. You know, we don't have anything in there that says one person can buy the other person's shares, but that is just always a possibility. If I say, Hey, I love this house. I want to buy you out. You'll get the money today, but you don't get the passive income indefinitely or if they want to buy me out i understand the process well enough now i'd like to buy out your portions and take over this property for myself you know that's always a possibility you can add that to the operating agreement later you can add it later or you can just do it because it's i think that's governed by corporate law like you don't have to have specific which um, state is the operating agreement in so um delaware okay (laughs) <laughs> glad i asked because somebody on a podcast told me to open corporations in delaware that was there's there's like better uh friendly corporate law in delaware yeah, yeah. delaware has that that reputation of, of being the best which is really strange because it's run by democrats yeah it's just that's really odd i mean actually joe biden is from delaware so well but yeah that they're they're very friendly to corporations that's for sure yeah Oh, okay. So you got it. You got the L it's at an LLC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, it's incorporated in Delaware. Okay. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. My, my favorite beer brand is in Delaware. Dogfish head beer is in Delaware. Oh, dogfish heads. Great. So now they have to pay me 10% on all profits because I said that one sentence in this <laughs> podcast. Uh, tell us about your dad. Do you have a, a minute yeah. or two to, to talk about your dad? Cause he came up last time and, and someone said, no, talk about his dad. Yeah, yeah. Your dad was um, on the radio. What was his name? Rich Bueller. He was a radio talk show host, pastor, pilot, best-selling author, consultant, um, really a journalist. He was a news editor. was his, I think, first career out of college was in news. So very, very interesting guy. And um, he'd be the first to tell you, you know, he passed away in 2012. Uh, but he'd be the first to tell you he did not have a master plan for his life. He kind of took one step, you know, one foot in front of the other and God led him into all these different opportunities. Very multi-talented, very personable. Um, to, to meet him was to love him, you know, get a big hug and uh, have a big laugh and just, 
you're part of his fan base. I mean, it's just that simple, you know, very humble. How many he fans never, did he have? You think? Um, well, so I would say at the height, so he was syndicated, nationally syndicated, and he was on the, you know, the radio every day for 10 or 15 years. Hmm. Um, the Christian radio. So I would put it in the hundreds of thousands, at least. Um, that, that knew him, listened to him, maybe had bought one of his books, maybe heard him speak at their local church. What is What was his daily radio program called? He had two. The big one was called Talk from the Heart. And then he had one called Table Talk. And if you go to richbuehler.com, we um, have been sort of collating uh, his books and some of his um, audio seminars uh, we just republished one of his books uh, called uh, Pain and Pretending, which is a beautiful book about, um, about how survivors of abuse, childhood abuse or neglect, um, have to pretend, they have to put on a second self to, to function in this world, to hide their pain, and that, um, and that this causes obviously relational difficulties as adults. And so he's helping them to understand how to get the the part of you that's hurt to come out and to be the public self and to integrate those and it's a beautiful wow. book I, I i i read it you know for my own edification as well as um out of just you know wanting to see what my dad was all about but he's got he's got three books that you can get the links to there the used copies are not readily available um you know you, you can go on ebay and it says like a hundred dollars and you probably shouldn't pay that for one of these books but um, there's just not many. So the pain and pretending you can get the um, 30th anniversary edition for, you know, a regular book price, like 12, 13 bucks, whatever it is. Um, so he, he, you know, he wrote books. He had a lot of, a lot of people that were helped in that way. Um, and uh, he, he was a pastor for a number of years before he got back into radio. Um, so he had a very pastoral heart and he brought that to his radio show. So he was one of the first, you know, we think of like Dr. Laura or um, gotcha. some of these, you know, phone counseling kind of things on the radio. He was one of the first to do that in the early 90s, late 80s, I think. Um, and people would open up in public about their sexual abuse, let's say, or about their, their childhood physical abuse. And anonymously, you know, he would give them counseling and everyone listening was like, that's me too. Gotcha. So he had this big impact on people. What was his academic uh, background like for, for that? He got his uh, BA in psychology, I think, from or journalism from uh, Biola. So he was a Biola guy. And that's where he met my mom. And uh, they married as like sophomores in college. Wow. Um, maybe, maybe they were, maybe they're a little older, but they met um, that young. And uh so he never got his, he, he, he failed at a seminary because he couldn't do Greek. And back then Greek was like a, you know, necessary. So he did end up getting uh, two honorary doctorates. And so we, you know, he would sometimes jokingly call himself Dr. Rich, but, but he was very clear that honorary doctorate is a little different from an earned doctorate. Um, yeah. And this is, this is a little bit of a story that's self-aggrandizing. So forgive me, but he once told my uncle um, cause I, I had struggled in high school and I left early <clears throat> to go work for a year before I went to college. And my uncle asked my dad, what's up with Keith, you know, leaving high school. And my dad told him, Keith will be the first one in the family to earn a PhD. Wow. 
He said that. So I, he said that about me, and I didn't know that until wow. years after his death. My uncle told me that story. Um, but he he knew the value of of education. It was a, you know was a voracious reader and all this. But his doctorate was uh, was earned or was uh, was honorary. Gotcha. So he eventually became the pastor of a Foursquare church that didn't require that kind of seminary, you know, education. Right. right. Okay. Were you so, guys yeah. close? Were you close? We were, we were, he, he died of cancer and um, the cancer sort of like, you know, forced us all to deal with our issues. <laughs> you know, if we're going to talk this out. We better do it quick. Um, so <laughs> I wouldn't say we were close growing up um, because of, you know, emotional family difficulties. Um, my parents' marriage did eventually end when I was 18. Um, and so that was, um, I, I don't think I was healthy enough to really like understand who my father was and to kind of appreciate him for, for his strengths and weaknesses, um, until I was an adult and he was very humble. He, I, you know, I could lay into him. I could complain about his parenting, um, and just call him every name in the book and he would listen and say, thank you for sharing with me. And so a lot of parents, you know, have, have a hard time with that, hearing how their adult children giving their performance review. <laughs> yeah. So, he well, there's a biblical command to, to honor your father and your mother. And uh, how do you understand that command in terms of uh, public comments about your, your parents? I know it's a delicate issue, but I think there are different, understandings of how to approach that like some people sure. might think it's it is you can honor your parents even if uh you might have some critical remarks um for but, sure for sure but um yeah and other people they 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 might feel like they're obligated to lionize and idealize their parents in public even yeah. if that's not really how they feel yeah. I mean, that was even an issue at, at his funeral. I, I, we all got to speak and I was like, do I, do I say like our connection wasn't perfect, you know? Uh, because it seems like it could be disrespecting the dead right there, or it could be um, bringing things a little bit out of the ether into the real world, which is um, he had a better connection with his friends in many cases than some of his kids. Now, some of my siblings, never had this issue that I had with them. They were, they were able to figure him out and figure themselves out. So I'm not even putting the blame on him as much as saying our, our connection didn't, we, we couldn't figure it out until I was much older. And I'm, I'm very sad now that he's gone because um, I do appreciate him more and do, you know, I want him to know my kids and to, I want to share with him about life and things like this. So I, I definitely miss him uh, now but there was some frustration with wanting him to be a certain way that he wasn't right growing up. And uh, you just sort of have to let that go. You have to let, let your parents be who they are, ask for what you want. And if they can't do it, you got to go find it elsewhere. You know, they, they can't be everything. Do you feel comfortable just giving us a little, uh, a little bit on just an example of what that might've been for you guys, you and him? Just, just for us to hold on to a little bit. Right. So <laughs> I think, uh, 
a very simple example is um, I like to like some, some of my best friends um, and my wife and, and anyone in my sort of inner circle, we like to take long turns of talking, you know, like the interview format is typically question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. But the, the, the sitting on the back porch overlooking the lake on vacation, possibly a beverage in hand, um, that kind of conversation is question and then 30, 40 minutes of answer, you know, and, and that's how I prefer to communicate. I want to hear you talk for 45 minutes about what's going on with you and, you know, your wife's Facebook post today was very suggestive and interesting of life changes. And I was like, I just want to hear you go. Right. If we were, if we were having coffee or beer um, and I want to you drink beer, I drink LaCroix, but it's wow. not alcoholic. Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> I was just kidding. Yeah. And do I you, do you smoke um, cigars? I do smoke cigars on occasion. Okay. I try to, I try to not be. Let's have a, let's that. have a cigar at some point. Um, I'm in. Um, so anyhow, all that to say. So your dad would talk a lot or, and that was good he or. A lot. He would talk a lot. I, I like hearing him talk, but I didn't get a chance to talk. Oh, okay. And, and if I would talk, it would maybe be like a couple of minutes and, and I really wanted 30 minutes. Right. So yeah. it, it, it sounds sense. pretty petty now, but no, it's like, no, it, it doesn't kid, sound petty at all. Okay. I, in fact, I want to reassure you that does not sound petty at all. And I think. Uh, the the thing I noticed about your the uh, two shows that you mentioned, the word talk is in both of the both of the names, and that you know that that's a really wonderful <laughs> connection with your dynamic growing up, and I, I can understand why that would be very frustrating. I, I I relate to that a lot. Yeah. 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 In fact, one of my one of my counselors said, you know, you're I'm a professional listener, and your dad's a professional talker. Like you. That, that may not be something you you're going to get from him, right? That this is not his, um, he's invested a lot of time and energy into being a good talker and he is darn good at it. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and I, again, my siblings would say he was a great listener. You had to understand him. You had to, um, you know, you had to push through maybe some interruptions and then he would listen. So they figured out the code. I just was really sensitive mm. and, yeah. uh, and so I've tried to be that for my kids, you know, like l listen for a long time and wow. see what comes out. Wow. Well, a lot of, a lot of times I I've noticed that, um, the issue of what is a good listener is not very well understood in our culture. I don't think, and it's getting worse with social media because people seem to be getting shorter and shorter attention spans. You know, you go from um, people would would ride for hours to go see Abraham Lincoln at, debate uh, Douglas for hours. They would stand in the rain with mm -hmm. no microphones. They would and somebody would take notes. The only reason we know what they said is because people took notes. They took hours. detailed <laughs> notes, detailed notes, and they were published in newspapers. And there were no recording devices, right? They, 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 they you had to, re the reason we know exactly what they said is because it was written down and people That's were amazing. listening very carefully. And then 
the time that they would have to come go back home, they would be thinking about it, right? And what are they looking at? They're looking at the birds. They're looking at that rock over there. They're looking, they're maybe saying hi to somebody once in a while, but they had time to think and really listen. Their listening muscles were there. And our listening muscles are so emaciated that we don't even know we have them. Like mm. it's almost like someone who had no biceps and then they see somebody with biceps and they're like, oh my gosh. And it's like, well, you have that too, but you just don't develop it. And it's, it's a very interesting thing um, that people tell me about the podcast is they're impressed with how well I listen. I listen very carefully and I ask mm -hmm. very good questions. And sometimes mm -hmm. I, I take a little bit of a risk and I ask questions that the guest may not be interested in answering. Um, but uh, the reason I do that is because I'm trying to distinguish this from other podcasts that don't do that. And the reason that yeah. other podcasts don't do that is because they don't listen well. They don't listen carefully. Sure. They're just trying to get through the, okay, I only got 34 minutes before. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then, and then all of a sudden the podcasts all sound the same and yep. it's like, well, okay. So people and that think, listen well. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I think, I think something you, you do and that I consider to be part of good listening is the, the, art of the follow-up question or just the paraphrasing. So what you're saying is this, you know, of course you sprinkle that in with humor. Um, so what you're saying is that Democrats are dumb, <laughs> but you know, it, it's like, if I'm, if I'm letting my, my wife or my brother-in-law or my best friend talk for a long time, I might not be silent because that can get awkward, but I'm, I'm using my, they might pass the tennis ball back to me. I'm using my turn to say, yeah, keep going. You know, what, what else about that? Like, why is that? What do you feel about that? You know, where's this going to go? And so essentially it's, you're giving them the floor and if they try to give you the floor back, you say, no, no, it's still your turn. It's still your turn. And that takes a kind of intentionality that, that I agree is, is emaciated. You know, what I love about your style, Keith, is that, uh, there's a container there that's not anxious. It's a non-anxious presence. I mean, I can tell you struggle with anxiety, but the beautiful thing about your struggle is it just feels like you're still a, a container that isn't interested in pushing your anxiety onto somebody else. And that some people, that's how they listen, that their, their modality is if they hear something stressful that someone said, they can't contain it with a non-anxious, curious presence with an attention span. They have to kind of just immediately return some other anxiety of their own. Like, oh yeah, well, I'm dealing with the same thing. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, okay. It just, <laughs> it can sometimes feel like, um, or I dealt with that when I was a kid. Yeah. And then there's other more horrible things that have happened. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of like, well, I mean, I might be interested in hearing about that at some point, but that very moment probably was not the best way to have that make me feel like I was listened to because it just mm -hmm. feels like sometimes it feels like you're diminishing what I've said or, you know, so that's anyway, I appreciate okay. your non-anxious presence. And well, and, thank you. That's, yeah, uh, it's not like you're just some guy that's le levitating on a cloud and you're, and you have no facial expression and you're like, <laughs> yes. Uh, if you want to get involved in real estate, um, <laughs> Uh, rid the richest man in Babylon 
you know, <laughs> you, you know, you, you can, I can tell you have normal human reactions, but you're not like, you know, so good for mm -hmm. you, man. And you're Thank a you. unique guy. I really highly respect you. You're, you're just, uh, it's an, it's amazing what you've done with just nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, with your mind and with your faithfulness and you, you, you it's ama your amazing story, I think. So. Thank you very much. That, that's very kind. And I would love to, um, you know, in, a, in this public venue or in a private venue, you know, keep you posted on the, the real estate goals because, um, you know, it seems to sure. be going well. And I, and I, every day is, you know, I try to resurrender it, but, you know, maybe in four years, if your podcast is uh, in the top 10 and, um, I can come on and say, remember in 2022, when I said, you know, 2026 was the goal, you know, I'd love to see if I get there because, um, it's a lot of fun and, and it's very fun to hear from other people. As I share my story, people start telling me that sharing their goals and, uh, these are adults, right? So, but I'm, it, it sort of feels like teaching where it's like, you have a goal to get into this college and you, and I'm invested now in your goal. I'm, you have a goal to get an A on this paper. And so it's been a fun part of my journey to, to, that people are now sharing their financial goals and, and I get to encourage or, or just stand on the sidelines and cheer or, or maybe even be involved. But, um, but uh, I appreciate you listening well to my excitement there. And what I hear you saying is that you really appreciated me listening well. That's right. That's, that's what listening. I heard. So you, you got it. It landed. And I, and I also heard that I had a good sense of humor, which I'm going to take that and put that in my front pocket today. And that's going to carry me through. I didn't, I didn't hear your esteemed co-host laughing at your jokes today, like I did last time. And, and I think that's maybe yeah. a sufficient sense of humor on his part, uh, <laughs> or maybe he's not here. So, yeah, we'll have to get him back on for next time. Well, Keith, uh, thank you again for coming on and uh, giving us an update. And we'll, we're excited to have you back. It's an honor. And uh, always, you know, keep me, on, keep me in mind if you need a guest who's not, not quite as cool as some of these, uh, <laughs> like the cop who worked on the oil rig. Um, that was a great episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, yeah. I will gladly take my humble seat at the, at the table here with you. Thanks for having me on. You're very, you're very kind. <laughs>